0: One two three, testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: A bad defense is the worst offense. Today is Wednesday, May thirteenth, two thousand and twenty. This morning, I got up bright and early and had a wonderful discussion with Jonathan Streeter at his podcast titled, Thoughts on Things and Stuff. Jonathan Streeter contacted me yesterday and invited me on to his podcast. He was very gracious to make the invitation. I was very gracious to accept the invitation, especially on such short notice, and especially on something dealing with a subject that I really don't have an awful lot of knowledge about. That subject is Joseph Smith and Polygamy. But in preparing for today's podcast and the interview with Jonathan Streeter on the subject, as well as during the course of the podcast itself, I learned a lot of very interesting things and found a lot of what I hope are interesting things to say about the subject. The podcast, as it turned out, went for three Hours, yes, three hours of me and Jonathan Streeter talking about this subject. So my plan is to take that three hours, cut it up into three parts each an hour long and release these as podcasts on Radio Free Mormon today, tomorrow and on Friday as well. It is a little bit overwhelming to listen to all of this in one sitting, three hours. It was a little overwhelming to me just to participate in it for three hours. I found that I got a headache by the end of it trying to keep track of all the intricacies and all the relationships and all the dramatis personae that were involved even in this one incident related to plural marriage and Joseph Smith. And the specific incident has to do with Joseph Smith's marriage to the daughter of Newell K. Whitney and Newell K. Whitney's wife, Elizabeth Whitney, and that daughter's name was Sarah Whitney, Sarah Ann Whitney. And the reason this particular episode of plural marriage is so interesting and so important is because it is the one episode that we have documentation on because Sarah, and or her parents insisted that Joseph Smith put it in writing, that Joseph Smith put in writings all the blessings that were going to be incurred to Sarah and her family as a result of Sarah agreeing to marry Joseph Smith and as a result of Sarah's parents agreeing to allow their daughter to get married to Joseph Smith. She was only 17 years old at the time parental consent was required. So the reason this podcast is titled A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense is because we not only deal with the subject and the documentation that surrounds it and that establishes it as a fact in Mormon history, i.e. Joseph Smith's plural marriage to Sarah Ann Whitney. We also deal with some of the defenses that have been attempted to be made by apologists for Joseph Smith, primarily defenses that have been made by Brian Hales in order to justify Joseph Smith. In these practices and I think that by the time we're done with the three hours we examine a lot of those defenses that are put forward by Brian Hales and others we conclude that they are in fact not good defenses they're bad defenses and therefore we came up with the title that a bad defense is the worst offense obviously taking a little poetic license there because the worst offense is actually doing it in the first place the worst offense is what Joseph Smith did it's not as bad to try and justify his aberrant and abhorrent behavior, as Brian Hales does. But it's still pretty bad, nonetheless. So here we go, with the first of a three-part podcast, Radio Free Mormon and Jonathan Streeter, together again for the first time. Play the tape.
1: and welcome to today's episode of Talk on Things and Stuff. I'm John Streeter and it's, what is it, Wednesday, May 13th, 2020. We're still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic quarantine lockdown, but I got my studio back because I kicked my kids out of the house. So uh, they're back in their apartments and uh, and I'm now dealing with the the debris that they left. At any rate, today, we've got something special. We are going to be joined by a guest host, and that is Radio Free Mormon. Radio Free Mormon, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me, Jonathan? I can hear you well, and then hopefully people in the audience, if they can't if they can hear you, certainly let us know. Um, but, uh, so, you know, the people in the audience may not realize it, but some of us content creators, like, talk behind the scenes every once in a while, and... Uh, I, you know, I I've always enjoy being able to hear from you or give you a call and kind of bounce ideas off of you. And there was something that came up in the middle of a conversation recently in the Mormon Historians group that uh, I felt like I needed to to get your opinion about because it concerned a legal matter. And uh, and so that's why I gave you a call, and you were gracious enough to join us here. Now, before we get started, though, I want to make sure that anyone watching my channel is aware of what's going on at uh, Radio Free Mormon. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in the quarantine lockdown. Well, what
0: I've been doing is now for the past eight weeks, I've been putting up a new podcast at RadioFreeMormon.org every weekday, and uh, this is going to be my podcast for today. I'm not sure how we're going to work this out, but this is going to be it,
1: Jonathan. Okay, no, that's fine. I'll send you the audio when we're all done. Uh, certainly, if if you're stuck at home and you're trying to figure out what to do and you just want to have just a phenomenal exploration of some of the themes and processes that people go through as they are in the church, are discovering the truth of the church and, and escaping that type of control over your life, then listening to Radio Free Mormon, you know, there's very few things that you can do that's more enlightening and entertaining Because you've got a great sense of humor that you always inject into things. So I'm going to embarrass you with that.
0: Yes, quite embarrassed. (laughs) Glad you can't see my face. I'm blushing.
1: (laughs) All right. So um, I'm joined by Yu-Gi-Oh. I don't know how he got through the cage, but he's here now. So you're probably going to hear some whimpers and and stuff from him. Um, So what I thought thought we would do, uh, RFM, is kind of go... Not at the point at which the, the reason I called you happened, because we're going to get there, and it's it's an important thing that I want to explore and and, and hear your opinion of, but we're going to kind of back it up and get, we're going to cover some of the material that actually gets there. And I titled this particular episode, Defending Joseph When the Best Defense is the Worst Offense. Uh, basically, because I want to look, when we explore how defenders of Joseph raise arguments and try to, to get you to um, accept the excuses that they put forth for why what Joseph did was just not that bad or why we should accept it, it kind of demands something of you when you go down to the root of it. And so when we get there at the end of this journey, we just want to kind of step back and say, what is this demanding of us? What is this, you know, is what they're asking of us a, a, a good thing or not? But... um Does that sound good to you? We'll start with the story of Sarah Ann Whitney and her uh, betrothal. So let me bring up the right tab. If we go to there.
0: While you're bringing that up, Jonathan, Mm -hmm. I have to take full responsibility for the late start of your podcast (laughs) today because that was totally my fault. I'm technologically Mm -hmm. challenged. It's also why there is not an image, even a logo, for me up on your podcast right now.
1: Oh, that's okay. No worries about it. All right. So so this is what we're going to do is we're going to start as our springboard with a blog post from Professor Benjamin Park. If you're not familiar with Benjamin Park, he's a phenomenal integrator of history. He's a history professor at some uh, muckety-muck university that I, uh, I'm not giving him the courtesy of remembering. Uh, he recently came out with a book about Nauvoo that he was inspired to write after reading the um, the Council of 50 Minutes, which were released. But um, in preparation for that book, he would occasionally share some snippets of history as he was reviewing the events of Nauvoo. And one particular chapter in that history was brought to life when the Joseph Smith Papers Project released... A scanned copy of a blessing that had been given to one of Joseph Smith's wives in his own handwriting and it was that release of that digital document which inspired um, this post so uh, we will put a link to it in the description the name of the post is Joseph Smith Sarah and Whitney and the familial dynamics of Nauvoo polygamy it was posted in October of 2017 um, and what we'll do, RFm, I think initially is I will uh, read it. We can pause as we need to uh, to talk about some of the principles and the ideas here. And then at the end, we'll we'll see where this goes from there. Does that sound all right? That sounds great. By the way, Benjamin E. Park is Assistant
0: Professor of History at Sam Houston State University.
1: Excellent. Thank you for giving me the background on that.
0: That's okay. until right. it's my friend.
1: Okay, so let's start out. So Sarah Ann Whitney grew up knowing and revering Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. Her parents, Newell Kay and Elizabeth Ann Whitney, were some of the Smith's earliest converts. Newell soon became the second bishop in the church, and Elizabeth was one of the founders of the Female Relief Society. In Nauvoo, the Whitneys were royalty. It was logical then that Newell and Elizabeth were some of the first people Smith told about a new doctrine allowing polygamy.
0: Can I break in now, here bef- for a second? Yeah, let's do it. Isn't this funny? Because I'm used to providing basically all the content for my show. I think you're yeah. pretty much used to doing the same thing. And so we are I'm going to have to interrupt. I apologize.
1: Please. No, but, that's exactly how this goes. So okay. do so.
0: Spoiler alert here. It's Sarah. The daughter of Newell and Elizabeth, who is going to end up being one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. Okay, so that's a spoiler alert. But even here in the beginning paragraph, we are seeing seated in this article the relationship that is going to allow this to happen. Sarah, the daughter, grew up knowing and revering Joseph Smith, Mm. the Mormon prophet. So she reveres him as a prophet. She not only knows him, she reveres him and her parents do the same thing. That's Newell Whitney. And Newell Whitney, Newell K. Whitney is a familiar name in Mormon history, even to those who just go to church every Sunday and don't do a lot of studying beyond that. They've heard that name before. And his wife, Elizabeth, they are some of Smith's earliest converts. They share the same view of Joseph as Sarah does. They know and revere Joseph Smith as a prophet. And indeed, Newell and Elizabeth end up being royalty royalty. Newell is the second bishop in the church. Elizabeth is one of the founders of the Female Relief Society, which Mm -hmm. is going to play into the story later on as it relates to her relationship and her discomfort with the whole situation over the fact that she's friends with Emma, even while she's covering for Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah,
1: excellent points. And the thing that I always like to to imagine, anytime I read about any of Joseph Smith's uh, plural wives... I always try to make sure and go back and say, wait a second, where is the first time that Joseph Smith encountered this woman and what was the context at that point? And when you look at the story of Sarah Ann Whitney, she was, I think, a six-year-old girl, daughter, of the, uh, the Whitney's at the time that Joseph entered their life. And it's funny when you look at the history of how Joseph actually first met Newell K. Whitney. He pulls up in a carriage, steps out of the carriage. Newell K. Whitney is like in the front of his store, his house or something. And the guy comes, Joseph comes up to him and says, you know, Newell K. Whitney, I'm your man. And he's like, "Uh, you have me at a disadvantage. I don't know you, but you apparently know me. And he's like, you prayed me here. What do you want me to do is what Joseph said when you look at the way that con artists work you know that whole confidence man name plays into how they interact how they uh, leverage people's trust how they leverage uh, you know the mechanisms of their deception um and this was one of the ways that joseph smith was able to do that all he had to do was you know Every other person that he met, particularly if they were wealthy shop owners, introduced himself in that way. And if they were amenable to that, if they're like, wow, I, ha- I have been praying for some sort of assistance recently. You must be an answer to a prayer. Then suddenly it automatically gives them that divine connection. So there's there's a whole lot in this history that you uh, you absolutely point out there.
0: Right. And I think that was in February of 1831. And... Uh, Joseph Smith pulls up with Emma in a sleigh in the snow in Kirtland, Ohio. So this is very early on. This is less than a year mm-hmm. after the organization of, organization of the church, and when Joseph Smith is making the move from New York over to Kirtland, Ohio.
1: Excellent. All right. So let's continue where we are with Professor Park's piece. Uh, it was logical then that Newell and Elizabeths were some of the most some of the first people Smith told about a new doctrine allowing polygamy. They were at first shocked but eventually accepting. And then, and this is a quote from them, uh, "Laying, laying aside all our traditions and former notions in regard to marriage, Elizabeth later wrote, they consented to give our eldest daughter, then 17 years of age, to Joseph in the order of plural marriage. Sarah Ann, their second child and first daughter, was to be wed to the prophet of her youth, a man 20 years her senior. Now, there's something in what they just said. We are laying aside all our traditions and former notions in regard to marriage. And if you make a study of religious charlatans who enter into unorthodox sexual practices, one of the things that they always have to do is they have to find a way to subvert the normal traditional morals of people so that they can start to see the unorthodox practices that the religious charlatan has as something divine, even though in their prior moral framework, it would be seen as abominable. And in Mormonism, Joseph Smith does this with his tales of eternal sealings and the theological principles behind that in order to get exalted, you have to actually be in this type of eternal celestial marriage, which, you know, early on in the church meant entering into this polygamous uh, arrangement. Um, that's kind of the thing that struck me about there is that they're saying that they ab- abandoned their prior moral principles. Did that hit you?
0: Oh, yes. there. There's going to be a whole lot that Joseph Smith is going to have to overcome with both the mother and the father, as well as their daughter, in order to make this work. And that's one
1: of the first hurdles he's going to have to encounter. Yeah. And when you study people who do this type of, you know, I consider it to be predatory behavior, there's this idea that there's grooming involved, which is that, um, you know, a man trying to exploit some vulnerable target has to not only convince or persuade their target, but particularly in this instance of children, they have to make their, uh, you know, their appeals, their approach, their proximity to the person okay with everyone else around the person. And Joseph Smith, again and again, when you study Nancy Rigdon, when you study um, all of the, the, particularly the younger Women that he ended up being involved with, you see that pattern of grooming happening. Whereas if we if we saw it today in some religious leader, it'd be like, oh yeah, he's totally grooming them. You know, he's trying to get the parents to be okay with what he's talking about, and that's like grooming. But it's it's always different to see it in the history. All right, so let's continue. Uh, the sealing between Joseph Smith and Sarah Ann Whitney took place in secret on July twenty seventh of eighteen forty two it is the only polygamous ceiling from Nauvoo where participants left a written record of the ritual. This document framed as a revelation is perhaps the best insight into the dynastic theology upon which polygamy was based. It was written in the voice of God and directed to Newell Whitney and instructed him on how to perform the quixotic nuptials between his daughter and Smith. Quote from that document, they shall take each other by the hand, it explained, and you shall say you both mutually agree, calling them by name to be each other's companions so long as you both shall live. That's the end of that quote. The ceiling promised, quote, honor and immortality and eternal life to the entire Whitney household. Sarah Ann was merely a link in a chain that bound the Smith and Whitney families An assurance of salvation for Newell and Elizabeth their ancestors, and even their progenitors. By attaching themselves to the royal lineage of Mormonism's prophet, the Whitney family found eternal stability." Now there's just so much in what Professor Park just described right there. Um, uh, Do you wanna take a first shot at it before I say anything about it? Sure, thank you very much. A couple of comments that I have first
0: uh, is that Professor Park, I appreciate his scholarship and his research. I will tell you, however, that I do sense a slightly apologetic bent in the way he's recounting things. The first thing is this. We've gone into this for several paragraphs. And the question that I have is, how old was Sarah when she got married to Joseph Smith? Because a number of things are stated here, but I don't see her. Excuse me. I don't see her
1: actual age. (laughs) Give it. <laughs> he mentioned it. He did mention it very early on, which was that she was 17 years old when this happened. Oh, okay. Where? Okay, 17. I think that's. It's like er, earlier up there, but he he kind of frames it initially before he gets to the nitty and the gritty. Okay, well then let me <clears throat> put that to the side and say that
0: there's one word in this paragraph that you just read that leapt out to me, and that is the word merely. I don't know if you had the same reaction yeah. to that as I did. But what he says there and what you just read was that Sarah Ann, this 17-year-old girl that Joseph Smith is now marrying secretly after he has wrung the consent out of her weeping parents, Sarah Ann was merely a link in a chain that bound the Smith and Whitney family. Mm -hmm. You see, Sarah is not merely the link in a chain, at least not from my point of view. She's the entire point of this whole thing. She is the objective. The whole point is to marry her. So I don't see her as merely a link in a chain. I know a lot of people will talk about how Joseph Smith wanted to form dynasties and familial uh, organizations and things like that. Later on, Professor Park's going to say he lusted for kinship and all this kind of nonsense. Like Joseph Smith was an orphan or something, and he didn't have any family of his own. Like he didn't have a wife and kids. No, And a house full of foster kids? Yeah. I guess he was marrying of, them. So The field his white, all ready to harvest but this whole idea about merely a link in a chain that bound the Smith and Whitney families. The thing I think about is this, okay, look, if Joseph Smith wants to have kin, and if that's really his driving force, why doesn't he just have Sarah sealed to him as his daughter? Okay. By the same means, her parents become part of his family. She becomes part of his family. His lust for kin is satisfied. But I think that because he wanted her for a wife, And that's what really he was after. She's not merely a link. So what I see is it's not so much as lust for kin as is lust for Sarah and Whitney.
1: Now, I I can see that you're falling into one of the classic, uh, you know, anti-Mormon blunders, which is that you are assuming that polygamy is just about sex. And, you know, <laughs> Brian Hales is very fond of of criticizing people who would start a conversation with what you just said. Why, you know, like, why in the world do you think this is just about sex? Did you not hear about dynasties and eternal exaltation? Like, those were in there, too. I know. There are
0: always the justifications. But here's what I have to say to that, Jonathan. A person doesn't have to get, okay, you don't have to marry a girl not to have sex with her.
1: Okay, well, but but the thing is, sex is part of it, because remember, it's to to, uh, eternal seed and progress. At any rate, yes, sex is a reason, but there are other reasons. I mean, how was Sarah Ann going to get to heaven? I guess she could have gotten married to somebody else. I don't know. It's weird, because when you listen to them talk about today women are worried about eternal polygamy in the life hereafter and you'll hear apologists say, well, no, 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 don't worry about that. You know, if you're sealed to an abusive man on earth in the hereafter, they'll just break that seal and you'll get sealed to somebody else. Okay, well, if that's true, then why in the world is Joseph Smith racing to get sealed to all of these other people back in the day if they could get sealed in the future if it was really, really necessary? There's just so many inconsistencies in this, but you're, you know, you're compelled to accept them. I'd I'd want to stand up for Professor Park here because one of his brilliant moves, I think, in both the marketability of his books as well as his discussion is, you'll read his books and you can't tell whether he's really a Mormon, faithful Mormon defending or somebody who's just laying it all out there. He does a really good job of walking that line. I agree with you. There is a bias here towards a faithful perspective particularly. And uh, for me, it wasn't the word merely that stood out in that, but it was the the chain and the link in the chain. Basically, she's just an a, a means to an end that Joseph had. And it wasn't her sparkling personality. It wasn't her, um, you know, all of the rich aspects of her individual character and identity that Joseph Smith l- lusted for or wanted. It, it was a very carnal thing. And that's reflected in how much time, how much involvement in her life he would eventually have, the same with any of his other plural wives. Um, Now, before we go any further, there's a line we're going to encounter later about lusting for kin, but uh, that is just an illusion, and I think Professor Park is signaling to people who are in the know that he's familiar with um, Bushman's book. Yes, that's a line that Bushman used uh, saying that Joseph Smith wasn't really lusting for sex or anything. He was lusting for kin or kinship or these familial ties. Um, And, you know, you could say that about any religious charlatan who used a theological framework with appeals to divinity and piety and righteousness. You know, they're not lusting for sex. They're lusting for the familial bonds of spiritual brotherhood. It's essentially sex. All right, so let's keep going here. Okay, so, oh, and the other thing, you know, Whitney family found eternal stability. When you are part of a closed group on frontier of, America, and there's this charismatic leader who literally speaks for God, who can cast you down, who can make or break you based on their word alone, it's always safer to be on their good side. And if you can not only be on their good side, but be somebody that they depend on, rely on, keep their secrets, then your position in that group is safe. There are material benefits that the Whitney family gets from allowing Joseph Smith to take their daughter from being in his closed circle and this may sound like oh you just want to find everything wrong with joseph that you can but just go and look at any other group you can read if you go right now and search for the uh people's temple or jim jones or jonestown on on google there's a website that is an academic website where they've recorded and transcribed jim jones talks as well as stories and accounts from survivors of the people's temple And the things that they'll tell you is that people wanted to be close to Jim Jones. They allowed him to take advantages in in their personal life that they would not otherwise have allowed because of the secondary benefits that they got from being within his inner circle. Those dynamics exist in these types of totalistic organizations, and you can't deny their influence on the people around Joseph Smith who ended up offering to him their daughters Uh, as part of his practices.
0: Right, and essentially what Newell and Elizabeth Whitney end up doing is trading their 17-year-old daughter in exchange for eternal life.
1: Exactly. And 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 we'll get to that when we look at the actual revelation, but this is the same dynamic that I find so offensive when we look at the story of Helen Mar Kimball. You know, yes, she's 14 and he's 38 and that age disparity is really smelly and really stinky, but the thing that is more offensive even than that is that She initially refused the idea, and it was only after Joseph brought this idea that by accepting it, you will guarantee the salvation and exaltation of your entire family. That then is a burden placed on a young child that they are now responsible, based on whether they accept the, the prophet's proposals, for the salvation of their entire family, which Having been raised in that religious paradigm is, you know, all of these people were yearning for a sense of security about the hereafter, because that's the entire religious world that they have. Uh, and so that's just a huge amount of pressure. I consider it ecclesiastical abuse. Um, and it's part of this as well.
0: Well, I think it's inexcusable, that kind of pressure to put on anybody, especially a child, to say, you need to marry me, or your whole
1: family's going to hell, basically. Yeah, exactly. And they'll say, it's, he didn't say they were going to hell. He just said, if you marry them, then they're guaranteed salvation. Maybe they'd get salvation anyway, but this is the guarantee. It's it's a lamentable uh, form of an apologetic argument that demands too much of, of the viewer. All right, so let's keep going. So Smith, in turn, relished this new association. Let me make this full screen. Relish is a was, word
0: that can cover a lot of ground.
1: <laughs> it was a period where he needed moral support. The next month, while he was in hiding to escape extradition charges, Smith wrote a letter pleading for Newell, Elizabeth, and Sarah to come visit him at his secret hideout. I think Joseph he knew, needed.
0: I think Joseph needed some immoral support too. By the way, go ahead.
1: <laughs> you were terrible. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Yet he knew the scandal involved, especially if his wife, Emma, found out. And so he wrote He wrote in the letter, the only thing to be careful of, Smith cautioned, is to find out when Emma comes because it cannot be safe if she were present. Clandestine relationships during tense situations required secret rendezvous. Smith often wrote his emotions on his sleeves, and this letter demonstrates that his lust for kin extended to polygamous families. There it is, lust for kin. There it is. (laughs) He certainly knew it was scandalous. Smith urged the Whitney's to burn this letter as soon as you read it. Besieged from all sides, Smith was earnest enough to take risks. All right. So this brings out uh, a a very remarkable letter. And before we go forward, I want to see if we can look at some of these uh, sources, because um, we are getting to a point where those sources become important. So let me just uh, see if I can first find, okay, a bunch that was a blessing. You go ahead and look for
0: that. And while you're doing it, I'll cover okay. Because sounds good. The word that stands out to me in this paragraph is earnest. That is so apologetic, at least from my point of view, besieged from all sides. Okay, he's the victim here, by the way. You notice that Joseph Smith is the one who's the victim. He needs some moral support, some comfort. So he's besieged from all sides. But he was earnest enough to take risks. That's why he's taking this risk of having uh, Sarah's parents bring. Sarah out to visit him and make sure that, you know, M is not around because it's not safe if M is around and she sees what's happening. But he's earnest enough to take these risks. I'm not sure if earnest is a word that I would choose to describe it. He's certainly willing to take risks, but I don't know if
1: earnest is a word I would use
0: to describe it. Uh,
1: Very good point. Uh, but the thing is, you'll hear this all the time. People defending Joseph are willing to bend over backwards in every rhetorical and principal way in order to preserve uh, Joseph Smith's character and his worthiness as a prophet. And that that impulse to preserve Joseph allows them to pretty much throw anybody else under the bus. And so you'll see them excuse Joseph, you know, here, there, and wherever, even to the extent where when you're talking about some of Joseph's plural wives, you know, we'll see maybe in some later discussions that if, you know, a series of events could be explained by Joseph Smith simply engaging in adultery and lying, or you could reinterpret things so that everybody around Joseph Smith was lying, and it was the woman who then committed adultery when she went back to her first husband, that's the interpretation they're going to go with. And it's just reflective of this idea that the highest value is really preserving the worthiness of Joseph Smith because their entire religious worldview uh, depends on it. Yeah. Don't
0: forget that the whole reason that Joseph Smith is hiding out in the first place is because the law in Missouri is looking for him. He's hiding out to escape extradition charges this is a criminal. Exactly. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but if you look at it objectively, he is a criminal in the sense that he is wanted for violating the law in Missouri. Law enforcement officials from Missouri are looking for him, and so he's having to hide out. But while he's hiding out, he wants uh, Sarah to be brought to him so that he can have some moral support while he continues to relish the new association. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, so let's take a look at this letter. The re- this letter, for me, is is really powerful— because it is actually one of the documents that we have that is written in Joseph Smith's hand, in his handwriting. So um, I've got now pulled up the Joseph Smith paper's website, and we can see the digitized uh, copy of that letter. It's uh, identified as being written August 18th, 1842 from Nauvoo. And uh, let's just take a look at what actually is contained in this letter dear and beloved brother Newell K. Whitney and sister Elizabeth Whitney, and etc. And everybody agrees, both critics and uh, defenders, that the etc. is Sarah Ann Whitney. And you get that from the context of when this letter was written, as well as the contents of the, the letter. I take this opportunity to communicate some of my feelings privately at this time, which I want you three eternally to keep in your own bosoms. For my feelings are so strong for you since what has passed lately between us, that the time of my absence from you seems so long and dreary that it seems as if I could not live long in this way. And if you three would come and see me in this, my lonely retreat, it would afford me great relief of mind. If those with whom I am allied do love me, now is the time to afford me succor in the days of exile, for you know I foretold you all of these things." I'm now at Carlos Granger's, just back of Brother Hiram's farm. It's only one mile from town. The nights are very pleasant indeed. All three of you can come and see me in the fore part of the night. So we've got... It starts out and... I don't know if you've had the opportunity um, to watch the Netflix documentary called Abducted in Plain Sight. No. Um, So it's the story of a young girl and her family who happened to be Mormon and they grew up with this guy showing just like a really unusual affinity for their family. He would come and help them build stuff, do yard work, he'd come take the kids out. I mean, he was just like and he inserted themselves in their family life, became very good friends with the father and the mother and seemed to just really have a lot of concern for this particular young daughter. And when you watch the story, you'll discover later that he seduced both of the parents and did so in order to make them both complicit and secretive in their relationship with him and to facilitate his access to their young daughter. And it's an example where somebody, even that you can see, because you know, once you see the age of the girl and the guy. Uh, people would describe him as either a pedophile or an beebophile, if pibophile whatever it is, where you're, where, where he specifically is fixated sexually on um, adolescents, not necessarily prepubertal kids, but adolescents. But in order to achieve that fixation, he had to court and um, seduce the parents themselves. So he's seducing old people, he's seducing young people, and it's all part of his predatory behaviors. And when I look at the relationship that Joseph Smith has with the Newell K. Whitney family, I am reminded a lot of, before the seduction, all of the ingratiating activities that the man did in order to curry favor with the parents to get them on his side and totally complicit and tolerant of anything that he would do. Um, If you haven't had a chance to see that documentary, it's called Abducted in Plain Sight, and it is... uh, you know it goes into places that are far even crazier than what i've discussed but that is one thing that i took away from it
0: the letter that you just read from the joseph smith papers project website jonathan is that the mm-hmm. one that says uh, that uh, Smith urged the witnesses to burn this letter as soon as you read yes, it.
1: Yes, we're going to get to that. It's it's not okay. very long of a letter, so I I do want to uh, continue it. This is this is how these podcasts go. Uh, Rfm. I just go on crazy tangents, and we'll get the, we'll get back to Professor Park in a little bit. Okay, so. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so he's telling him where he is. He's hiding out in Carl's Granger's. You know, if we were to see L. Ron Hubbard, he like took to the seas and hid out from government authorities. We're like, oh yeah, guy's totally a criminal. He's trying to escape being caught. You know, we take Jim Jones. He flies his entire group off to Guyana to escape the, uh, you know, the legal authorities in America. Oh yeah, he's totally, you know, on the lam. He's trying to escape stuff. But Joseph Smith, no, he's persecuted innocents. You know, he's hiding because those mean people just want to try to tear down the truth.
0: Right. And I bring that up about him being on the Lamb and a criminal. And only I actually feel bad when I'm saying that because I'm talking about Joseph Smith. I mean, I revered him as a prophet as well for a long period of time. And I know that we've got excuses for him. We got excuses for Joseph all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to be a person who is revered as a prophet because you don't have to make excuses for your aberrant behavior your followers will make them for you. And that oh, continues yeah. up to the present day with Mormon apologists. They're making excuses for Joseph all over the place. They're making excuses for the LDS church all over the place. Uh, President Elson can sit back, put his hands behind his head, and put his feet up on his desk and just let them do the heavy lifting for him because they're more than willing to do it. But I'm just pointing out that in this one paragraph, Professor Park mentions the situation and the context, and we actually are in a place where now we have to start making multiple simultaneous excuses for joseph smith that he's on the lamb he's hiding to escape extradition charges so we have to make excuses for him there well he's not really guilty he's being harassed by the legal authorities in missouri for no good reason but at the same time he's having sarah and her parents come out to visit him so he can have uh what was it it said um something about um uh, a relief of mind that's what you yes. read. The letter Really Yes, am not sure if it was only his mind that he wanted relief, and
1: and afford him sucker. And I'm not even going to go there. But the, um, <laughs> I thought it too. Just if it makes you feel better. Okay. So and then you, he describes like he's inviting them to come and visit him in his loneliness, and I can relate a little bit to the lonely. Like I feel socially isolated with this whole coronavirus lockdown. Yeah. And you know Joseph Smith here he's socially isolated in Carlos Granger's farm. Uh and but he describes like he's just like he's like really it's really it's going to be really great. I've got, you know, I've got a, a nice comfortable room you can be in. And so that's the next part of it. It's like, you know, Jonathan the night, so, Jonathan.
0: Yes. He's alone. He needs comfort. Why doesn't he you know, ask somebody to bring Emma?
1: Well, no, no Emma's going to come, but you got to make sure you come when Emma's not here. And it's you know, the question you just ask is brilliant, which is, you know, if he's alone and he needs comfort, why is he writing a letter to this guy? And let's say that he wanted the comfort of his friend. Let's say that Whitney and Smith were just best buds. You know, I've got a friend that, you know, I, I hang out with, I give him a call. I always check up on how he's doing. I want to know how his grandkids are or whatever, but I call him. I don't call, you know, any child that he may have. Um, but that's, you know, I... For some reason, he needs relief and succor that only the daughter can provide. And the daughter can't come alone, so he's got to have the kids, the parents, with him. But the nights are very pleasant indeed. Let's continue reading here. You should be reading Um, this
0: as the angel.
1: (laughs) All three of you can come and see me in the fore part of the night. Brother Whitney, come a little ahead and knock at the east corner of the house at the window. It's next to the cornfield. I have the room entirely by myself. The whole matter can be attended to with the most perfect safety. I know it is the will of God you should comfort me now in this time of confliction, or not at all now, is the we're going to go to the next page, is the time, or never. But I have no need of saying any such thing to you, for I know the goodness of your hearts, and that you will do the will of the Lord when it is made known to you. So I want to stop there because I didn't, it didn't occur to me that he's using the voice of God to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's saying, you know, so he's the prophet. They revere him as the prophet. He's saying, it is the will of God that you come and visit me and bring your 17-year-old daughter to whom I'm secretly wed and knock at the
0: door. <laughs> and I, I, it can be attended with the most perfect safety because guess what? I have the room entirely to myself. Now, why is he saying that?
1: Very good point. Well and he's it's probably are it,
0: by the way. Go ahead. Now it's, it's probably now never it, Jonathan.
1: Yeah, is because Carlos Granger is probably not in on the secret dealings. And so he's probably trying to put their mind at ease that he's got the room to himself. It's a rear entrance to the house. And so they don't have to worry about being discovered by Granger and then, you know, rumors spreading because they can see him. He's got it'll be totally private. And, um, okay, so know, let's, he,
0: saying it, let's say you're right, okay, because I think mm-hmm. that's the most charitable interpretation of what it is he's writing. Why is it that they have to worry about Granger, right? Unless Joseph Smith is going to be acting in such a way with Sarah as it would be obvious that they're more than just friends. Uh,
1: that's a good point. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think because I've had discussions about this letter with people who are trying to defend Joseph and the the common argument they get is you guys, you know, th- the feds were watching Emma because they were trying to find out where Joseph was. So when he says that you got to avoid Emma, they're just trying to protect Joseph so before we talk about that, though, let's get to the next part because it, it bears directly on what you're talking about. So I think you've so already he, read
0: where he says is to find out when Emma comes. No, words, that's,
1: that's right where I stopped because okay, I, did, go I ahead. that's go ahead. fundamentally a different thing. So he's, he's already said, you know, I've got the place to myself. You know, the Lord said you can come and it's now or never, but I know you'll do what the Lord says because you're a good guy. Uh, and then, but, 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 when you come, and this is where we continue, the only thing to be careful of is to find out when Emma comes. Then you cannot be safe. But when she's not here, there is the most perfect safety. Only be careful to escape observation as much as possible. I know it is a heroic undertaking, but so much the greater friendship and the more joy. When I see you, I will tell you all my plans. I cannot write them on paper. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. Are you keep it, it all locked up in your, your mustache
0: as you're reading this jonathan <laughs> i'm sorry it's just like when you
1: <laughs> when you in principle take what he's saying it's like he's he's pl- plotting and conniving you know but it's for righteous purposes you shouldn't be reading it with the evil voice but i mean okay so he's saying when my okay so first of all if the whole idea was that the feds are following emma And we don't want the feds to know where Joseph is, then the principle at play would be Emma's not going to come around because we know the feds are tailing her. And if if they're tailing her and she comes to Carlos Granger's house, they're going to be like, why is Emma Smith going to Carlos Granger's house? Oh, Joseph Smith is probably there. So that wouldn't even be an issue because apparently Emma's coming regularly. So she's not worried that she's being tailed there. They're not worried about that. So then the question is, why can the Whitney family not get there when Emma's there? Why is it not safe for them? Well, you know, I think you can guess.
0: Well, yeah, because obviously, here's the whole deal, okay? If, as the apologists are apparently wanting to say, Joseph Smith just wants Newell and Elizabeth to bring their daughter, Sarah, out for a friendly visit, like a home teaching visit or something like that, or ministering or whatever we call Mm -hmm. it now. If that's all it is, yeah, if that's all it is, and everything's on the up and up, and there's no hanky-panky going on in the room that he has completely to himself, okay, none of that's happening, right? Then why would it make any difference, first off, about Granger knowing about it, and why would it make any difference if Emma knew about it? Why would it make any difference if Emma's there, if everything's on the up and up? What danger is there?
1: Yeah, well, see, (laughs) I'm putting on my apologist hat, which is, you know... RFM, you are just, you're so eager to just find fault with the prophet. You have to understand that the prophet is doing his best to obey God's commands. And we know from D&C 132 that Emma, as the first wife, would have been given an opportunity to accept the principle. Well, she got ticked off when she, when she learned about Fanny Alger, And so she was, you know, she had to have been introduced to the principle then, and she rejected it. So now Joseph is trying to preserve Emma's soul by not confronting her with the opportunity to reject God's law again. If, if Joseph can save Emma from, because of her selfishness and her, her you know, short-sightedness, rejecting the principle of polygamy— then Joseph's going to save Emma from the destruction that, you know, is is inevitably going to happen. So by keeping his plural marriages secret, which he has to do because the angel said he has to do it. So he's following God's command, and he's saving Emma from further condemnation because he knows she's going to reject it. So he has to keep these things safe. So Joseph is trying to do the best he can, RFM, and, you know, you're sitting there and criticizing him for trying to keep God's commandments, and I'm just... I'm offended.
0: I'm sorry. Well, you're making a choice to be offended. That's all I got to say. But here's the deal. Okay. Can I, I know we've got this article to get through and I don't mean to keep doing these tangents, but I have been a lawyer for 30 years now. Okay. And as Mm -hmm. a lawyer, I am very well aware of the fact that I have to be able to look at the same set of facts from different points of view. There's the point of view of the defense attorney, which is what I am. There's the point of view of the prosecutor. And most importantly, Jonathan, there's the point of view of the jury. Okay. Mm Because the jury is going to be looking at this more objectively than the defense attorney or the defendant and more objectively than the prosecutor. The jury's just going to be sitting there and looking at things from an objective neutral point of view. And that is the most important hat to put on. Now I will tell you that some time ago I had a client. Okay. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was charged with having a loaded AK 47 in the back of his car okay so he's got it's loaded it's got uh, armor piercing rounds in it it's in the back of his car it's under like a t-shirt or something and the cops pull him over for something else they find this this loaded uh, automatic rifle in the back of his car and he tells them that oh he didn't know what was there okay and i remember talking with him at one point and trying to get him to understand the fact that the jury is going to be looking at this objectively Okay, and they're going to be making a determination as to whether he actually knew it was back there based upon the facts. They're not in the tank with the defendant. Okay, they're not going to be looking at everything the way the defendant wants them to look at it. And there are some arguments that are so bad that no jury in the entire universe is going to believe. And I remember talking with this uh, particular client and saying, well, look, it's your car. There is this rifle in the back. okay, and it's covered with a T-shirt. And he says, Well, I didn't know it was there. And I say, Look, it has your first name written on the magazine in Sharpie. (laughs) And he said, It didn't faze him. He said, Well, a lot of people have that first name. (laughs) Okay, you may believe that. Okay, you have to be totally in the tank for a certain position for this defendant to believe that story, right? But a jury is never going to believe that story. So when you start getting to the point and hopefully uh, intelligent people uh, will recognize when they're starting to go into that twilight zone of insanity, where there's a story that's being put forward that is so crazy that only a defendant would believe it, that you have to be totally in the tank for this particular story to work and that no jury, no objective person in the world would buy this even for a second. And that's where I think we're getting with the uh masterful apologetic that you just put forward about joseph smith and the reason he's doing all this stuff was because he's such a good guy and he's just trying to obey god while simultaneously saving sarah and her family and not having to destroy emma
1: yeah yeah and and the thing is that's where you have to go in order to defend joseph again and again and again and, you know, who is the jury in the context of this? Well, you know, it's all of us who are trying to learn about history and contextualize it with what the church claims about itself. And, um, you know, the, the apologists have a new thing that they're doing. I don't know if it's that new, but what they're saying is that, listen, everybody has a bias. You know, the people who are critical of the church have a bias. I'm, you know, defending the church. I have a bias. So just take what I say, you know, for what it is. I, you know, I have a bias and that's, that's okay. It's just my bias. I take as a premise all of the claims of the church and of Joseph, and then fit all of the evidence into that bias, and that's just my approach. And they see that as a legitimate approach, because in addition to logic, rationality, and evidence, they con- they consider uh, revelation and inspiration to be a legitimate, factual, evidentiary material they can bring to an argument. And I've seen that from Carrie Muhlstein on the subject of Egyptology in the book of Abraham. I've seen it from Dan Peterson. I've seen it from um, a number of defenders of the church who acknowledge their bias, relish it, and don't do the second step, which is supposed to follow that, which is to acknowledge that your bias may affect your judgment and your rationalizations and then try to diffuse them and eliminate what the bias could do.
0: Right, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking because I had the similar discussion with Bill Real when we were talking about a video that was put forth by Stephen Harper. I think it was about church mm-hmm. history, and um, but th- that you're exactly right. The whole the first step is to identify your biases because everybody does have biases, right? We've all got mm-hmm. them, but the point of identify them is not then to cave to them and to interpret everything in light of the bias that you have that you've already identified. The purpose of identifying it is to say, hey, I need to resist the natural inclination to filter all the evidence through my bias. And I need to be able to try and look at this as objectively as I possibly can. And that's what recognizing and identifying your bias is supposed to help you do, not make you somebody who's going to say, hey, it's not my rifle. It's in the backseat of my car. And a lot of people have that first name. Yeah, exactly.
1: All right, let's get through this letter. I think we're almost done with it here. So he's talked about, you know, when Emma comes, don't come, but there's perfect safety. And then, you know, he's going to... The, the part I love about this is that the Whitneys did not burn this letter. You know, I, I I'll tell you all my plans. I cannot write them on paper. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. Because I think... Unless we actually had a letter from Joseph that said, burn this letter, and it didn't get burned, if, if anyone, particularly when I was faithful, if anyone said, you know, Joseph Smith wrote letters and he told people to burn them, I'd be like, yeah, right, that's like some sort of crazy, you know, mafia thing. But here it is. Now, I think we'll learn when we get to the end of Park's letter that the Whitney family had a kind of a trust-but-verify approach to Joseph, Mm-hmm. Which is like any blessing or boon Joseph would get them. They wanted it in writing, and then they kept it, and it was handed down through their posterity as proof of all of these things that Joseph blessed them, and that included this letter. <clears throat> all you know, right,
0: I, I agree with you. I see this letter as Joseph Smith's blue dress,
1: blue dress.
0: That's that a, a that's a Clinton reference.
1: Oh my God. Okay. All right. Keep it all locked up in your breast. My life depends on it. One thing I want to see you for is to get the fullness of my blessings sealed upon our heads, etc. So, etc. there again is Sarah Ann Whitney. So, he's talking there directly to his plural uh, wife. You will pardon me for my earnestness on this subject when you consider how lonesome I must be. Your good feelings know how to make every allowance for me. I close my letter. I think Emma won't come tonight. If she don't, don't fail to come tonight. I subscribe myself, your most obedient and affectionate companion and friend, Joseph Smith. And so that's that's this letter that, uh, that Park alludes to, written to the Whitney family and daughter. Now, keep in mind, and this is going to become important, the Whitney family has another child who's older than Sarah Ann. Horace. Uh, Horace. You know, if he just wants kin, why is he not asking Horace to come? Well, it turns out Horace probably would be opposed to the prophet marrying his 17-year-old sister. No and, no kidding, really? Yeah. And what's funny is that, and this is great, Brian Hales and some other people have said, you know, you know, people saying that Joseph Smith would send men on missions so he could marry their wives. That's ridiculous. Joseph Smith never did anything like that. But we have written by... uh Helen Mark Kimball, who is eventually sister-in-law with Sarah Ann Whitney, a description of what happened, which is that Joseph Smith felt that Horace wouldn't like the fact that he was married to them, so he encouraged him to leave Nauvoo and go visit family out east. And so that pattern of sending people who would have a problem with these relationships away so that Joseph Smith could engage in the relationships is established in this example as well. So mm-hmm. let's go back to... By the way, what are these, Uh,
0: this fullness of blessings that Joseph Smith is talking about experiencing with Sarah?
1: Yeah, because they've already been married according to um, a particular revelation that was given. And so you you have to ask yourself, what ordinances could a married couple who presumably if you're married and sealed, you've had the endowment, but the, the temple wasn't built, so they just kind of roughed it at the time. But what other ordinance could possibly be a part of this? Can does anything jump to mind? I have something in mind, I think it might be, but. What's that? Well, we know that husbands and wives can receive the second anointing. And that that was something that existed in Nauvoo. And so if somebody's already been married, then you could describe receiving a more full type ordinance, or you know, what do they call it? The um, the second anointing is also called the sure word of prophecy. Um, you know, those, it's it's like a higher level that has to happen as as a husband and wife. That could be something of it. Um, but you know, and you could even take that notion and say, oh, oh. This this is this is why he wanted them to be there in secret. He was going to do the second anointing. You know, it wasn't sexual. It was the second anointing. We're going to grasp onto that idea. It does say I just went ahead and did
0: some research while you were talking. This is really handy doing it with two people, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, the second anointing apparently, at least according to the Wikipedia article on the subject, the first time a second anointing was performed was on September 28, 1843. When Smith and his wife Emma received it. So, if that is correct, and there's a footnote there, of course, uh, the footnote is from Greg Prince from his book, Ordinances the Second Anointing. So, somebody who does kind of know what they're talking about, it's from uh, Power from on High, The Development of Mormon Priesthood. So, if that's correct, and it sounds like the first time the second anointing was performed was over a year after, was it over a year uh, after this?
1: Okay, yeah, this is. Um, bu- 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 Mm, august eighteen forty
0: two yeah, so it's over a year after, according okay. to that that reference that the first uh second anointing well, was performed
1: well dang you you messed up my my apologetic argument with your well, research maybe he was just practicing i don't know ah, well i'm trying to I'm trying to plant black pearls for apologists to use in the future, so then you can disprove them later <laughs> okay uh so we should while we're talking about it uh read if we can the the revelation given to um Newell K. Whitney which in which God himself the creator of the universe looked past all of the people in the world who were suffering under plagues and slavery and all of the other trials of the world to focus his voice on linking and marrying um Joseph Smith to a 17-year-old girl. Um, Let's see if we can find here. Here we go. Let's see. We got a letter. Mm -hmm. We might even have to use... uh... See, this is the sort of thing that I should have had queued up beforehand. This part's not my fault. Oh, Dan. So you can edit this part out if you want to, but I'm going to okay we'll we'll find that eventually all right let's get back to Professor Park because he's so good at weeding, weaving a narrative okay, so here we go and we I think are we left it. off
0: with besieged from all sides Smith was earnest enough to take risks uh, yes can mm-hmm. I read the next part can I read the next part?
1: Yes yes please do all right but the wity fin- oh sorry I got to make sure on the screen I'm showing the right thing all right this is better Smith but the okay here we go go ahead take it away. But the Whitney family had its own struggles. The decision to
0: seal their daughter to Smith caused Elizabeth great agony. Well, I'm glad that they're recognizing the fact that the mother of this 16, 17-year-old girl suffered great agony over this decision. Not oh. only was she Sarah's mother, but she was a good friend to, drumroll please, Emma with whom she helped organize the Relief Society only a few months previous. So here's the mom. Here's Sarah Whitney. She's giving her daughter over to Joseph Smith to be a plural wife because it's going to ensure their exaltation. At the same time, she's friends with Emma, who she's just gotten a letter from Joseph Smith, presumably. Uh, Sarah saw it as well. That says, hey, don't don't come around if Emma's here because then it's not safe. By the way, Emma's not coming tonight, so please come, please come. So she's got uh, divided loyalties all over the place. So, yes, definitely great agony. Sorry, I'll continue. Now she was helping orchestrate covert meetings between her daughter and her prophet. She later admitted, now we're quoting from what she wrote, how bad she felt when Joseph Smith first broached the subject to her. Well, I'll bet she felt pretty bad. I can only imagine how bad I would feel. And I think sometimes it's helpful to me because a lot of times I'm up in my head, Jonathan, and looking at facts and history and blah, blah, blah. But honestly, uh, I did a podcast not too long ago in which I talked about a friend of mine named Sue who was married to a guy in the temple. They have this family. It's a wonderful Mormon family. He gets into polygamy. He drags her into it, kicking and screaming, but she doesn't want to get divorced so she goes along unwillingly, right? And she talks about this this kind of patriarchal polygamist coming to them one day, the husband and his wife, right? He's kind of a big deal. I think his name was Tom Green or something. I'd never heard of him before, but in these small circles, Hmm. uh, I guess he's a big deal. And he comes to, to, to them, in other words, to my friend Sue and her husband, Joe, and says to says to them, My wife had a dream, okay? And the dream is is that your fifteen year old daughter needs to be my uh, polygamous wife. Now suddenly, when I'm talking about somebody they actually know, even though it's not happening to me personally, it's not two hundred years ago at least, and I'm just going, You have got to be kidding me. How would I feel as a parent if some schmo came to me and said, Oh, your 15-year-old daughter, your 17-year-old daughter, your 18-year-old daughter is supposed to be my polygamous wife because
1: it has been revealed in some divine way. And not to me, but to my wife. So, you know, it's righteous because women are more spiritual and, you know, I'm not doing it on the slide because my wife's okay with it. By the way, don't, don't talk to my wife. Yeah, don't tell my wife about
0: it. Yeah, Joseph Smith didn't have his wife on board on that one. Exactly. So she later admitted how bad she felt when Joseph Smith first broached the subject to her and how she cried about it. Okay? She's crying about it. She's actually reacting the way you would expect a a mother to react in a situation like this. She cried about it, but the prophet at last obtained her consent. Okay, so what on earth did Joseph Smith have to do to obtain her consent? You know, I don't expect he was beating her physically, but spiritually, oh yeah. This was an anguishing ordeal. Nor was Elizabeth the only family member to have doubts. Smith asked the Whitney family, excuse me, Smith asked the Whitney parents to keep the marriage secret, not only from Emma, but from their son, Horace, whom Joseph feared would cause serious trouble. That's quote unquote, he would cause serious trouble. This, This was a hard strain on a family that had already sacrificed much for the faith. Now, honestly, okay, I'm just going to be a human being with you here for a second. Okay, it's not normal for me. I hope you'll forgive me. But honestly, here is Joseph Smith who has a family that reveres him as a prophet. And he's going to do this to them. He's going to do this to the mom. He's going to do this to the dad. He's going to do this to their daughter. And he's going to do this to their son. This is reprehensible. Jonathan, because as you have more and more power over other people, whether it's religious or political, the obligation grows to not take advantage of that power and have them doing things that are against their will, that they feel morally uh, unconscionable. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.